You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Lord, help us to know that there is nothing better than you. That you are what our hearts desire. You are what our souls long for. That no matter where we look, no matter where we go, to the corners of the earth, Lord, that you are the only one who will satisfy that you are the only one who will comfort. You're the only one where hope resides, where love is found, and where joy lives. Pray, Lord, that you be with us this morning as we dive into your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All righty, go ahead and have a seat, everybody. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So I don't know if you notice this or not, we're about one month removed from Christmas. And we all know what that means, right? We all know what that means, that the gifts that your kids or your grandkids just had to have for Christmas are now either gathering dust in the closet or tucked under the bed, right? They're now, they're now wanting something new because I'm bored. I don't have anything to play with, right? But they just had to have that toy or that thing at Christmas time. This is a cycle that each parent and grandparent knows about, right? We've been involved with. For months before Christmas, a child asks for and begs for some specific toy or some specific trinket or something. And the day they open that package, they're, they're super excited. And for a couple of weeks, they're still excited, if we're lucky, a couple of weeks. Then after those couple of weeks go by, they now have nothing to play with. They have nothing that they enjoy. If we're really lucky, you get a child who plays with that gift or that toy for a couple of months. Then they get bored of it. But the reality is, is most of the time they're going to get bored with it. But let's not just dump on kids here. We adults can be just as bad. We can be just as bad, right? I know that I can. I get a new car or a new house or a new job or a new boat or a new expensive toy and we're happy with it until a friend or a neighbor or a family member gets one that's bigger, one that's better, one that's newer, right? Why is that? Because the new always wears off. There's always something bigger. There's always something better. There's always something newer coming around the corner. In fact, marketing companies know this, that we always want something new and better, right? And they take the same old product and they repackage it and they put this little label on it that says what? New and improved, just to get you to buy it right? And maybe they tweaked it a little bit, but it's new and improved. And we go, oh man, we, we need this. It's new and it's improved, even though it's the same thing we've been buying for the last 30 years. We can get restless and discontent when we continue to chase after this feeling of joy at the start of something new, right? That we get something new and we're really happy and then we get really tired because we just want the new thing now. In fact, this I- idea of wanting something new is scientific. It happens in our brain I'm going to oversimplify what this, this activity is, but because science isn't really my wheelhouse, if you want to know more about this, you talk to Sherry Molnar and she'll be able to explain it a little bit. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. <laughs> Basically, our brains really like new things. They really like new things. And every time we experience something or get something new, our body releases this chemical in our brain called dopamine. Now, dopamine is this chemical that makes us feel good. So when you get something new, you are having a physical and a natural reaction to that new thing. You're really enjoying it, but guess what? Dopamine wears off. 
And guess about what the time frame is for that dopamine to wear off? A couple of weeks. A couple of weeks and it just goes away. Maybe you're sitting here and wondering like I did as I was thinking about this. Why did God design our bodies in a way that we get pleasure from new things? Why did he design it that way? And therefore, if we get new things and those new things grow old, we need to chase after new, newer things in order to feel that dopamine hit once again. To be happy once again, we need something new. Is this simply a flaw in our design? If he wanted us to be content in him, why didn't he just create? He created in us something without the drive to pursue something new and something better. And I think that's a really good question. And I believe that the Bible supports that God's design is intentional, that the way he created us is intentional. He's purposeful in the way that he designed us. And that what he has revealed to us in his word, specifically through the book of Ecclesiastes, is that we will never find lasting happiness in chasing after something that is new and shiny. Not only that, but being bound to chasing after something new is an example of the need for us, for us and the desire for us to be a new creation. We are bound by sin before Jesus, is, Jesus releases us. We're bound to chase after the things that don't satisfy until we are recreated. And as we walk with Je- Jesus, we will struggle with these desires, but part of the growth in Jesus into the men and women that God has created us to be is to renew our mind daily to exhibit and practice self-control. That is the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. And we are able to fight against these urges for something new and, being, and, and instead be content. And we can fight through these things because we have been set free from sin and death. We have been made into a new creation in Christ Jesus. The new has come and the old has passed away. And we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in obedience and to renew our mind. We have been transformed to find our satisfaction not in things, but in Jesus. But to come to this point, we have to be set free from the bondage that we have been bound to. We have to recognize that we are sinners, that we are broken, and that there is more to life than just chasing after this new pleasurable experience. The new and shiny things make us happy for a moment. Thank you. The new and shiny things make us happy for a moment, but they can only stay new and shiny for so long. Then they are old and they are dull and we want something newer and shinier. Thus showing us that what we are longing for isn't something new, it's something deeper. Because if that something new could fulfill us, then we would cease to want. And that's part of what we're going to look at this morning. Before we get too much into today's text i want us to quickly go over what we talked about last week because it'll be important to see where we are going to go this morning the author ecclesiastes either solomon or kohelet prepared us for the journey that he wanted to take us to starting in the at the end of the last chapter he wants us to know that he has set up an experiment so that you don't have to he set up an experiment so that you don't have to experiment he went and he explored pleasure and he explored possessions and he explored wisdom and work to let you know that it will never lead to meaning. And he is uniquely qualified for this experiment because he was extremely wise. He was wealthy and he was powerful and he was influential. He used all his wisdom, knowledge, and wealth to examine and explore all that this world had to offer. And he came back knowing that it was fruitless, it was meaningless, and it was a pursuit of the wind, chasing after the wind. Now this morning we're going to look at what this experiment actually was. Solomon had already told us what he found, that it was 
fruitless, but he wants us to know in detail how much research he actually did so that he could come to the conclusion that it is a pursuit of the wind, that it is futile under the sun, and that if we don't have an eternal perspective, we will be chasing after that same thing. But before we look at that, let's pray real quick, and then we'll look at what Solomon has to say. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to, um, to worship you through the preaching of your word, through the reading of your scripture. We pray that you would illuminate the words, um, that, you would, that the Holy Spirit would work in us to provide us a deeper understanding of what it is that you have presented for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, that we can pursue you because of what Jesus did. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says this, I said to myself, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it is madness, and about pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind the pull of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to grasp folly, until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. So what we see here is empty pleasure, that there is empty pleasure. The first on Solomon's list is to just try pleasure in general. This is the cry of most people. If it feels good, do it. If it makes you happy, do it. That's what Solomon is saying here in this first verse. Enjoy what is good. Here's something we have, hold intention, we have to hold in tension. We have to keep in balance. Pleasure is supposed to be pleasurable. God created things for them to be enjoyed. But the problem is, is that like everything else, we can tend to go too far. Like I said last week, we tend to take, take what God has made good and we make it crooked. We change it. Now, with pleasure, we can either swing one way or another. We can swing from one perspective to the other. The first way we go is that we become so pursuing of pleasure that we just do everything that feels good. The other way, on the other end of the spectrum, is that we look at pleasure and we say, we should not enjoy things. So what we're going to be is we're going to become religiously legalistic and put a damper on all pleasure. We can't have any pleasure. So either there's too much pleasure or there's not enough pleasure, right? But here's what we have to understand. Our God is not a killjoy. He created things for them to be enjoyed. He's not what I like to call a footy-duddy, right? God is not a footy-duddy. He wants us to enjoy things. He gives us good things so that we can enjoy, can enjoy them. He created us in a way that we can experience pleasure. And in experiencing pleasure, we can know that he is good, we aren't robots without any senses. We are humans who can feel and taste and touch and smell. So God created us to enjoy pleasure, but not empty pursuit of pleasure. He, in, he created us to enjoy pleasure so we, we, we would be drawn to him. So the problem that Solomon points out is not that pleasure is bad, but it's that pleasure is never enough. It isn't an end of itself. Pleasure is a pointer to something that truly satisfies in keeping with the theme from last week, I want you to notice how often Solomon says this phrase, I, in this passage. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 26, Solomon uses the word I 35 times. He's very focused on himself. It's all about what he did, what he experienced, and what he sought after. Now, admittedly, this is an autobiography, but when you take into account all the actions talked about in this passage, you can see what he that he was seeking and searching pleasure not to find God, but for self-centered reasons. Not God-honoring pleasure. 
And if we are honest with ourselves, Solomon would feel right at home in most of our homes here in America, seeking pleasure as an escape, seeking pleasure to avoid reality. Where the pursuit of pleasure is happiness and king and queen, the pursuit of pleasure and happiness are king and queen of this land. You see, Solomon wanted to make seeking pleasure the chief end goal of his life in this experiment. However, he does come to the conclusion, what? That it is all empty. That there is no meaning found in pleasure. There is no meaning found in wine. There is no meaning found in anything under the sun. Here's the problem, is that pleasure makes promises that it can't keep. The pursuit of pleasure will eventually lead you to prison. To a prison, not, not jail, but to a prison. Right? Where the pursuit of pleasure will trap you in this cycle of always wanting more, always wanting more, always wanting more, and never being satisfied. You're trapped. And there is nothing more futile or meaningless than that. Being trapped in that hamster wheel of pleasure. We've seen or we've interacted, we've all seen or interacted with someone who lo- lives life by this mantra, m- mantra, if it feels good, do it. Right? The problem is that most experiences only feel good, really good, the first time. Every other time we are pursuing and chasing after the pleasure we got the first time. And from, from what I understand, drug abuse is this way. Specifically the harder drugs, heroin, cocaine, meth, etc. I remember watching an interview with a recovered addict And this is what he said. He always was chasing the next high. The next opportunity to feel what he felt the first time he tried that drug. But this isn't just limited to drug abuse. This is true in our hearts as well. We get addicted to pleasure. Or we can get addicted to praise. We can get addicted to recognition. We can get addicted to hand claps. We can get addicted to whatever it is. And yet, when we get addicted to it, we're always seeking more. We're always chasing after pleasure but we're never finding satisfaction. And that is what Solomon wants us to see, that pleasure is futile if we chase after it as an end of itself. That it will never satisfy. So then the question is, what kind of pleasure did Solomon seek? First he said that he sought after laughter. (coughs) Excuse me. Here's the thing. I love to laugh. A good belly laugh It's fun. I love to hear other people laugh, especially my kids. But being entertained and having a good old belly laugh is an enjoyable experience. (coughs) Oh, excuse me. Here recently, our kids have been asking a lot to listen to comedians when we're on long car rides. Can we listen to a comedian, Mommy and Daddy? And hearing them laugh and laughing with them is pleasurable. But Solomon here, he tells us that laughter is madness. Laughter is madness. This madness isn't what we call crazy or being out of one's mind. It, it refers more to perverse or sinful or foolish pleasure. And this is a problem we have when we're trying to find uh, comedians for our, car to, our kids to listen to. Most of them are causing laughter through perversity. Right? They're cynical or they're sarcastic, they're frivolous, they're superficial, and sometimes they're just downright cruel. So though laughter is good, much of the things that we laugh at are cruel and perverse. And I see this with interactions with, with kids. Many of these kids watch a lot of these YouTube guys, right? And they tend to imitate the people that they watch. And, and they're, they're laughing at what's happening. And some of these YouTubers, they do a lot of what they call pranks that are funny on screen. But out of context, they can be hurtful or harmful. Just a couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with a couple kids 
Um, and one kid said something mean to another kid, and then it hurt his feelings. And when I confronted the offender, what did he say? He said, oh, it's just a prank. It's just a prank. You see, he was chasing after the same laughter that he had seen on YouTube. But he didn't understand that the impact that it would have on this kid that he said that mean thing about. It was actually cruel, and it was not funny at all. But he was seeking after this type of laughter. So not all laughter is bad, but laughter that hurts somebody, laughter that is cruel, laughter that seeks is perverse, those things are bad. So when it comes to laughter, we have to be mindful about what we laugh at. We need to recognize that there is no lasting meaning in laughter. The laughter, again, like many pleasures, is not an end of itself. In fact, if we look closely, we will see that those who laugh the most or those who help other people laugh the most seem to be the emptiest. There's no shortage of comedians and entertainers that have committed suicide or are addicted to drugs because they have found that there is no lasting meaning in comedy or in entertainment. So there's no, though it is good, it is not an end of itself. Not only that, but Solomon also speaks of drugs and alcohol. Well, alcohol mostly. In verse 3 it says this, I explored with my mind the pool of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom, and how to grasp folly until I could see what is good for people to do under heaven during the days, the few days of their lives. So this verse shows us that Solomon was using alcohol as a lubricant for his laughter. He was using alcohol to stimulate pleasure. He was chasing after intoxication of alcohol in order to make the ailments of life more tolerable. Now I want to take a quick moment and talk about alcohol. See, many of us growing up heard that drinking alcohol is bad, that it is sinful. But I want you to know that the Bible does not ever condemn drinking alcoholic beverages. The prohibition on drinking is within the pages of Scripture is drinking in excess or becoming drunk. At the same time, if your conviction personally is that you don't want to drink alcohol, that's perfectly fine as well. That is your conviction. But if you drink in excess, know that you will never find what you're looking for at the bottom of a bottle. It will never bring you joy. It will never bring you meaning. And that's what Solomon discovers here. There will never be true and lasting joy or true and lasting meaning found at the, indie, at, the empty, at the bottom of an empty wine glass or the bottom of a beer can or at the bottom of a liquor bottle. So if you decide that your conscience is clear when it comes to drinking, be wise. Don't get drunk. Now, if you wish to abstain, don't think that you're better than people who drink. There's balance there. But here at the end of verse 3, he wants us to know that drinking does not bring joy. Drinking does not bring pleasure. But also at the end of verse 3, what does he do? He touches on the reality that life, once again, is short. It is brief. We only live a few days. And what we do with those days really matter. Are we going to chase after pleasure or are we going to chase after meaning that is found in fearing God and obeying his commandments? So in the first leg of Solomon's experiment, he found that laughter and wine is ultimately empty. So what does he try next? What's his next on the list of pleasure to pursue? And it is possessions. Verse two, or verse four through six. <coughs> I increased my achievements. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted every kind of fruit of tree in them. I constructed reservoirs for myself from which to irrigate a grove of flourishing trees. Man, the first of the possessions Solomon thought, uh, thought 
that would give him meaning were places, right? So the possessions of places. He had houses and buildings and gardens and parks and vineyards and irrigation that he had built for himself. Notice these are multiples. It wasn't just one house. It wasn't just one garden. It wasn't just one park or one vineyard. There were many of them, a plurality of them. The text doesn't tell us this, but I would assume that each new house, each new garden, each new park, each new vineyard was better than the last one. That he wasn't going to build the same, he wanted to build better. Now when Corey and I first got married, we lived in apartments for the first few years that we were together. But I always wanted a house, a a home to call our own, if you will. The apartments we lived in were nice, but they weren't ours. We wanted some privacy. We wanted a backyard for the dogs to run around in. We wanted our own living space that we could have and we didn't have to share with anybody else. Now this account of Solomon of of building houses and stuff is kind of funny because when Corey and I bought our first house in DFW, we loved it. We loved the house. We walked in and we're like, this is the house that we want to buy. It was the perfect starter home for us. It was simple, but we had enough room for us and we had enough room for the dogs that we had at the time. And at this point, we didn't have any kids, so we had plenty of room. We had three bedrooms, two baths, a two-car garage. It was a nice older home in a secluded area. And it was ours. And it was awesome. We had no real complaints about the house until we got cable television. And we discovered this channel on the cable television called the Home and Gardening Channel, HGTV. Right? And at the time when we bought the house, HGTV, I don't know, I don't watch it anymore, really had only one format of show that they aired. And this is what a young couple, like us, wanted to buy a house. And they would show them their dream house. They would give this list of dream house things. They were like, this is the dream house that we have. And they would take them to the dream house, and they would say, here's the price tag for the dream house. They're like, oh, well, that's way out of our budget. Then they would take them to some fixer-upper. And they would show them this fixer-upper and say, we can buy this house and renovate it to be be mostly your dream house for this price tag. They're like, okay, we can really uh, afford that. It would be a, a cheaper way to get what they wanted. Well, these shows stirred within us a sense of covetousness. We were never happy with the house while we were watching these shows on HDTV because there's always carpet to be done or painting to be done or new countertops or a new kitchen, a renovated bathroom, whatever it was, we were just never happy. We wanted something new. We wanted to renovate our home. We were no longer satisfied with what we had. We wanted more. We wanted something that was going to bring back the feeling that we had when we first purchased that home. And Solomon wanted the same thing. Each new house, each new building would bring him pleasure for a minute. But then it would be gone when something else caught his eye. And unlike Corey and I, he had wealth available to him to build something brand new. And so what did he do? He did. Yet each new construction left him feeling as empty as the last one. Because houses will never satisfy. So he built some parks. And he built some gardens. And some vineyards. He wanted to have his own vineyard, his own gardens, his own parks. Maybe those, the beauty of those places would satisfy his heart. But notice what he's trying to do. If you really think about it, gardens and parks and vineyards, what is he trying to do? He's trying to recreate and rediscover the Garden of Eden. He's trying to restore what was lost when humanity sinned against a holy God. In fact, the phrase at the end of 2.5 really points us to this when it says, he planted every kind of fruit tree in them. And how do we know that? That phrase, planted every kind of fruit tree in them, is a phrase that's used three times in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. 
So Solomon here is trying to regain paradise by the works of his own hands. He's missing the fact that his search for meaning is found in God and what he created from the beginning. Remembering God's creation was very good. And God's purpose for man was spelled out in the garden to Adam and Eve. In verse Genesis 1, verse 28, he says that God says this to man. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And this is what Solomon was trying to do with this recreation of these gardens and these parks and this vineyards. And when Adam and Eve, before they sinned, they were in perfect fellowship with God, they were in harmony with God, and so they were able to do this. But the problem is, is that their satisfaction wasn't in the creation. Their satisfaction was supposed to be found in the creator. And what caused them to stumble was that they wanted something more. What causes us to stumble is that we want something more than God. The problem with this is that creation can never create meaning. Do you see that? He's attempting to create meaning, and so far the closest he has gotten is to go back to the beginning. Go back to where God says meaning is found, and fearing him and obeying his commands. Solomon knows that he cannot create or find pleasure in his creation, no matter how hard he tries. Nevertheless, he keeps chasing after possessions. So he's chasing that. He's chased after laughter. He chased after wine. He chased after possessions of homes and gardens and parks and vineyards. And now he's going to keep chasing after possessions. In verse 7, he says this, I acquired male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned livestock, large herds of flocks and flocks, more than all who were born before me in Jerusalem. I also amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I gathered male and female singers for myself and many concubines, the delights of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also remained with me. So the next thing Solomon is chasing after was his servants. Solomon was a pretty mighty king in conquest. So he would go and he would conquer territories and he would bring back servants with him. He was able to conquer surrounding nations and bring people there to serve him. Not only that, their servants there, there were slaves and there were servants that were born in his house. See, having many slaves and many servants was a sign of power and prestige in the ancient world. Not only that, but he tells us that he had flocks and herds that needed to be taken care of. So you know what you need when you have flocks and herds. You need people to take care of them, and he's not out there doing it. He's not going to plow land. He's not going to uh, shovel you know, animal stuff. Anyway, so he's got servants to do it for him. And like everything else, Solomon didn't lack in this area, Right? All he needed was all that he needed was there. Servants, land, possessions, numerous herds and flocks. I hope you're seeing a trend here in Ecclesiastes that it doesn't matter how much you possess, those possessions are empty and void of meaning. Solomon had it all and had it all not just a little bit but in abundance and he was still empty. He still longed for something better. That new car, that new house, that new phone, the boat, new boat, the new toy, the new spouse, the new relationship isn't going to make you any less empty. Solomon had all these things. And it does, he doesn't just have them a little bit, but in abundance. And he tells us that it's not enough. He tells us he has silver and gold. And remember in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 14, he says this, that the weight of gold that came to Solomon annually was 25 tons. 25 tons of gold each year he got. And he still didn't have enough. <coughs> he had people that would care for his every need, that would cater to him anytime he asked. He lacked nothing, 
and he found it all to be empty. I don't know if you notice this too, but he also had his own Spotify team of singers. He had people that, that would come to him and sing to him whenever he wanted to. You see, music wasn't as accessible then as it is today, so to have singers to entertain you was a big deal. And he had his own team of singers waiting for his beck and call to come and entertain him. Not only that, he had a harem of concubines, meaning that he had access to one of the most carnal pleasures anytime he wanted, with whomever he wanted. In fact, 1 Kings 11 verse 3 gives us the statistics on how much he had. (coughs) He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and they turned his heart away. So here we see that Solomon had wine, women, music, and money. And it wasn't enough. I don't know if this sounds something like something you've heard before, but he had sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He had it all, and he was still empty. He also was the greatest person in, to live in Jerusalem in these terms. And what was his conclusion about this pursuit of pleasure? Well, verses 10 and 11 tell us, All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. (coughs) And this was my reward for my struggles. When I considered all that I, I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. You see, all the desires, all the pleasures, all the escapism, all the hedonism were available at his fingertips, and he says it's all empty. A pursuit of the wind. It's all futile. And Solomon knows this because he didn't limit himself at all. You see that? All that his eyes desired, any pleasure that he could find, he indulged in it. He pursued it. And what did he do? He came out wanting more and knowing that it will never satisfy I want you to think about this for a moment. Everything that Solomon wanted, Solomon got. And through his experience, he said he didn't deny himself anything. He never handcuffed himself. He didn't practice any self-control. There was no self-control at all. If he saw it, if he thought it, if he wanted it, he pursued it. He captured it. He experienced it. He was a walking example of that phrase, if you feels good, do it. If it brings you happiness or pleasure, do it. He outdid everything we could ever do. No one will ever come close to the pursuit of pleasure that Solomon accomplished in his experiment. And yet, some of us are sitting back and going, man, I'm pretty envious of Solomon. You mean he got to do everything he ever wanted to do? He got everything he ever wanted? Any experience he wanted, he got to do. Everything. And I know that some of us would love that. I know that some of us would love that because I know some of us spend some time envying other people, envying the lives of other people. Sometimes celebrities, the rich and famous, they have all this. I wish I had all that. The lives of the rich and the famous, we look at them and we wish our lives were as good as theirs, or so we think. We wish we had as much money or as many houses as they do. If I only had more of this money, if I only had more of this pleasure, if I had, it only had more of fill in the blank, I would be happier if I had more. I would be happier if I had more. 
But here Solomon is telling us that there isn't anything further from the truth. He had it all, literally everything he could ever want. And we learned that the only thing he got in return was the reality that it was all futile. It was all a vapor. It was all smoke rising from the dust. It was all a pursuit of the wind. It was all chasing bubbles, only to see them vanish when he grasped a hold of one. It was all, as that word we talked about a couple weeks, hevel, smoke, vapor, meaningless, vanity. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now for us, we live in a privileged place of history. Um, Greg Easterbrook, he's a researcher and an author, he wrote this book called The The Progress of Paradox. How life gets better while people feel worse. And he concluded in his book this. "We We have more of almost everything today. In our time and in our place, we have more of almost everything today except happiness. We have more things, we have more money, we have more wealth, we have more possessions. The only thing that we don't have is happiness. We have more opportunities to communicate, more opportunities to make money, more opportunities to have meaningful relationships, and yet if you simply talk to people, you will see that it seems that depression is on a rise. Suicide and suicide attempts are on the rise. The more we see, the more we want, and the more we want, the unhappier we are. We have more of almost everything except for happiness. And I want you to notice here that Solomon calls his experiment, it's called a hedonistic experiment. He never withheld any pleasure. And he calls this pursuit of pleasure a struggle. He wanted everything. He got everything he wanted, and guess what? He was still unhappy. And it was hard work for him to get all that. He calls it a struggle. The desire never fades away. And what did Solomon get from his pursuit of pleasure? What did he find? What was his reward? What is your reward if all you want to do is find pleasure in possessions, people, relationships, money? Verse 11, when I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found that everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Listen, you can squeeze all the pleasure you want out of life, and it will be empty. Nothing can be gained by living a life in the pursuit of pleasure. And man, if you're anything like me, that might burst your bubble. If what you want out of life is pleasure, you will never experience it the way that Solomon did. You will never know the depth and the richness of what it is to not deny yourself anything. But you will find that it is all empty. No matter how hard you toil, no matter how hard you try to seek pleasure, it is going to be empty and provide you with no lasting happiness. Seeking pleasure for pleasure's sake will never offer you fulfillment. It will never satisfy your soul. I want you to reflect on that for just a minute. Seeking pleasure will never satisfy your soul. 1 John 2, verse 16 says this, For everything in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's possession is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Now, as we look at that, it seems that we should never want to have pleasure. If pleasure is not of God, then why would we want to experience it? But that's not what it says. God designed us that we should should have pleasure, that we should seek and find pleasure, but we should not seek and find pleasure as an end to itself, just so that we could feel good. 
Not just to avoid the pain of life or the struggles of the world. Not an escape from our problems. We should enjoy pleasure because it points us back to him. We should recognize that if we lead a life looking for pleasure to fulfill us, we will never find it. The reality of our dissatisfaction with pleasure of the earth should point us to the God of the universe. One commentator put it this way, if we are able to find lasting satisfaction, satisfaction in earthly pleasure, then we would never recognize our need for God. But satisfaction does not come in the pleasures themselves. It comes separately. Satisfaction comes only in God himself so that our dissatisfaction may teach us to turn to him. The lack of satisfaction we find in possessions and pleasures should prompt us to turn to him. So we turn and we find our ultimate pleasure and our ultimate satisfaction in him because we know that and have experienced that the things of this world are ultimately empty and void. They are all a pursuit of the wind. They are all meaningless. They are all futile. We need not to give in to the world, worldly hedonism, seeking pleasure to avoid pain. We need to find what, what one author called meaningful hedonism, a Christian hedonism where we find all our joy in the good gifts that God has given us. We find all our joy in who he is. You see, laughter is a gift from God. Wine is a gift from God. Beauty of homes and gardens are a gift from God. Sex in the right context is a beautiful gift of God. Music is a gift of God. Worship is a gift of God. These are all gifts from God. You see, all that Solomon was searching for is found complete in God. All that you are searching for is found complete in God. James chapter 1, verse 17 says this, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. The problem is, is we take those good and perfect gifts and we distort them. We try to find them as the sense of meaning. God doesn't want to steal our pleasure away from us. He doesn't want to rain on our parade. Rather, he knows that if we enjoy him, then we will receive the greatest pleasure of all. Because pleasure is only safe when God is there. Pleasure is only as good as it's going to be when God is there. Seek him and you will find the desires of your heart. Seek him and you will find pleasure. Seek him and you will find meaning. Seek him and you will be changed. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you are the one who completes us. That our pursuit of you will never be in vain. Unlike the pursuit of things of this world, Lord, that will leave us empty and, and meaninglessness, we know that if we pursue you, we will find joy, happiness, patience, peace. We'll find goodness. And I pray, Lord, that that would be the desires of our heart, that we will lean on you, that we will find you, that we will seek after you, and in that we will get to enjoy the greatest pleasure of all, being known as your son and daughter. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.